How's it going? Welcome back to a, another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Kenna. I'm Koel. And we're going to get into it because I'm excited. Too. Yeah, I'm ready to like lay back and just listen. Just have the the floor, just to listen yeah. and not have to read. And mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll get started. Um, definitely, just really quick, want to let you guys know about our social media. We are actively gaining followers every day and downloads, which we're really really excited about. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. It's really cool that I've been looking at our analytics and it shows that we have listeners like all over the world, <laughs> pretty much. It's really cool, with the exception of like some areas, but like. Anybody that's listening from another country other than the U.S. is awesome because I don't think I do that, right? How I think would you I have, even like, fi- How would you even find that? Exactly. Like, I listen to one podcast and they're from Canada. Yeah. But it's a little close. But anyway, thank you guys so much for your uh, support. Uh, continue to subscribe to the Patreon. Uh, please send us emails. Reach out to us via Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Our email is diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. And all of our handles are at diagnosingakiller with the exception of Twitter, which is at killerdiagnosis. That being said, we're going to move right into the case. Okay. What are we doing? <sighs> I've been wanting to do this one for so long, and I finally was like, can I just sit down and do the fucking research? Because I knew it was going <laughs> to take a while. This is one of a very infamous killer and a laundry list of them in California in this time period. Okay. We are going to be talking about... Joseph James D'Angelo, a.k.a. the Golden State Killer. Oh, D- okay. When you said D'Angelo, all I could think of was Beverly D'Angelo, which is an actress. That's not. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think there's any relation. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But that's cool. Golden yeah, State? Golden State. Ooh. He is scary. He is one of the ones that, like, if I was a, like, if I was a, an adult during this time period, I would have been, like, petrified. Oh, my gosh. Now. Haunting. Joseph James D'Angelo was born on November 8, 1945, in Bath, New York, to Kathleen Louise de Grote D'Angelo and Joseph James D'Angelo Sr. Okay. His father was a member of the United States Army throughout World War II as a sergeant, and his mother was a career waitress. Joseph was one of three children, his siblings being Sister Constance, who they called Connie, another sister Rebecca, and brother John. I do love that name, Constance. Yeah, that's cute, right? And Connie's cute, too. Yeah. I'm not sure if Rebecca and John were older or younger uh, because I couldn't find it, but Connie was definitely younger than Joseph. So the children were noted as experiencing a very grim childhood uh, with their grandfather, father, and mother alike being extremely abusive to all of them. Already, right? Classic. We always hear this. It's never like rainbows and butterflies. And I mean, sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's not. Joseph, however, received the most severe beatings growing up for seemingly no reason other than his dad's anger. Joseph Sr. would often lock the children in a closet for several hours, only to beat them mercilessly the minute he let them out. That's so fucked up. How can you do that to your child? Like, isolation and then violence. That's awful. Their mother would often withhold food from them and force them to go hungry as well. A fucking course. We hear this, unfortunately, more often as well than, than not. It's, uh, it's terrible. Yeah, it is. Um, due to his father's participation in the army, the family would often travel with him to various places while he was stationed there, of course. So one time when Joseph Jr. was about nine, 
The family went to Germany with their father while he was working. During the time of their stay, Joseph Jr. allegedly witnessed his seven-year-old little sister Constance being brutally assaulted and raped by two airmen in a warehouse. What? Seven years old. Seven? The two were playing in the warehouse together when the two men entered and overtook Constance, giving way for Joseph Jr. to witness the entire attack without being able to stop them. He just did it. They did it in front of him? Yeah. I mean, he's nine. What is he going to do? Like, it's in their mind, you know? Still, like, it's, it's still awful. a witness. Yeah. I know. That's awful. Many people believe that witnessing this was the turning point into Joseph Jr.'s life, and he began to develop very dark feelings from this point forward. Around the time that Joseph Jr. was a teenager, his mother Kathleen separated from Joseph Sr. and began dating another man who was a traveling welder. Kathleen and her new beau decided that they would move back to the States, and around 1959, the two of them, along with Joseph Jr., moved to Rancho Cordova, California. But left the other kids? Yes. Why? Okay. Yeah. Here, Joseph attended Mills Junior High School between 1959 and 1960, and in 1961, he attended Folsom High School, where he was on the JV basketball team. He would go on to receive his GED in 1964, but it was also noted that during this time, Joseph began to play into these awful feelings that he had been harboring, and he started to, you guessed it, torture and kill animals, committing numerous burglaries at this time as well. Like, <laughs> it just happens. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of our uh, podcasts could be skipped, like, right at the beginning, knowing what we know now and how many cases we've done. It's yeah. like, well, he's going to torture and kill animals. Well, what? he's going to fi- set fires. He's going to wet the bed. We all know this. Once he had his GED in hand, Joseph Jr. joined the U.S. Navy in September of 1964 during the Vietnam War. It was unclear whether he was drafted or he went on his own accord, but either way, he went on to serve 22 months as a damage control man on the cruiser USS Canberra and the destroyer tender USS Piedmont. Wow, that's a mouthful. I know. (laughs) I was like, get through this, get through this, get through this. (laughs) During his time in the Navy, Joseph earned a National Defense Service Medal and Vietnam Service Medal and a Vietnam Campaign Medal. Like, always getting their fucking medals. They're always getting medals. They gotta overachieve. Of course. After his 22 months ended, Joseph decided he would go back to school, and in August of 1968, he enrolled in Sierra College in Rockland, California, where he achieved an associate's degree in political science, graduating with honors. In 1970, Joseph became engaged to a nursing student by the name of Bonnie Jean Cowell, but she broke it off in 1971 after he quickly became manipulative and abusive. No way. Really? Of course no not. Way. I, it was either going to be that or it was going to be a month later, the two would elope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At one point, he tried to manipulate her into helping him cheat on an abnormal psych test, but she refused. So do you think that he, like, actually earned all those I don't know. grades? That makes me think that he won't. After the breakup, Joseph threatened her and attempted to force her to marry him at gunpoint. Oh, so it was both. (laughs) Sorry, it was both. It was, I'm gonna, I'm showing signs of abuse, or I'm gonna marry you, but in this case, it's both. It's both. Yeah, forcing somebody to marry you. Thankfully, Bonnie was able to get away from Joseph, and she did not speak to him ever again. Good. Clearly. 
After this, he then went on to attend Sacramento State University in 1971, where he earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice in 1972. Cute. A neighbor was noted as saying about Joseph during this time that he was pleasant and clean-cut in his youth, and he also lost a part of a finger in the war. Like, pepper that in there. Just pepper that in there. He can't. Yeah. He doesn't have a finger. <laughs> Jesus. No salt bay for him. That's so... <laughs> Ugh. What do you... Mm, that's what? so weird. I don't know. Like, I guess that gives him, like, extra credit. Character or something? Yeah. I don't know. It was probably a drunken accident. Joseph later took postgraduate courses and further police training at the College of Sequoias in Visalia, then completed a 32-week police internship at the police department in Roseville. In 1973, Joseph began dating a woman by the name of Sharon Marie Huddle, and the two quickly became married. Oh! There it is. Called it. Around the same time, he allegedly started working as either an intern or a volunteer at the Roseville Police Department, though the department apparently, quote, found no records of him ever having worked there when they were asked about it later. What the fuck? <laughs> well, he became, like, a criminal. They're like, I don't fucking know who that yeah, guy is. Yeah, I don't know. That's true. <laughs> burn it. Burn it. <laughs> burn the boy. <laughs> burn all of the documents. <laughs> The same year, Joseph was hired by the Exeter, California Police Department, southeast of Fresno, where he worked until 1976. From May 1976 to August 1976, Joseph was a burglary unit police officer at Exeter, having relocated from Citrus Heights. But he was already burglarizing things when he was younger, right? He was the burglar, and now he's like a burglar oh my police God. unit. That's like DEA agents that do fucking cocaine all day. Well, it's like so fucking weird. BTK that he was like a security... like. Security system installer, and then he, like, went to people's house. Yeah, you know he, I mean? he worked for ADT. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they even said about him, quote, D'Angelo believes that without law and order, there can be no government, and without a democratic government, there can be no freedom. Law enforcement is his career, he says, and his job is serving the community. Keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in mind. Believe it or not. He's he's not that nice of a guy, yeah. I'm assuming. He doesn't necessarily serve the community well. <laughs> During the time he was working for Auburn, he decided to use his knowledge of criminal justice and police procedures for evil, like I said. Sure. He had been placed on the burglary division of this department and began investigating home invasions. His own? <laughs> he's investigating his own? <gasps> no! <laughs> no! It's like Dexter. Everything relates back to Dexter. He does not... Using the knowledge from these crime scenes, oh D'Angelo decided that he would begin his own series of home invasions, as these sparked his interest. Seriously. The first ever recorded burglary committed by D'Angelo occurred on March 19th, 1974, when a sum of $50 in coins was stolen from a piggy bank. <laughs> a piggy bank? I swear to God. <laughs> what did he just... Wait. He didn't steal the whole piggy bank. He just, he stole out of the piggy bank yeah. and left the piggy bank. Yeah. Like how much noise do you think that made? Like he just had to just shake ching, it ching, or ching, he had to ching, break ching, it. Ching. Yeah. Over, over the bed <laughs> or you had to break it, yeah. which no. Most of his activities at this time included breaking into houses, rifling through or vandalizing the possessions in the home, going through women's undergarments and stealing low value items while often ignoring higher value items that were in plain sight. So he would steal, like, little things, but leave, like, expensive things lying out. Yeah, he's probably, like, testing the waters, seeing what he can get away with, huh? Yeah. He would also frequently arrange or display items in the home, 
Multiple same-day ransackings were also occurring, including 12 separate incidents on November 30th, 1974. In one fucking day? <laughs> 12? 12. Like, how how much time do you have? I don't even think I know at 12 people, <laughs> ha- like, where 12 people live, you know? <laughs> like, what the fuck? God, Jesus. he's ballsy, I'm telling you what. But it's like, but all... I'm assuming that these people aren't home. Is it just like walking down the street and seeing who has a car in the driveway? Maybe. That's so weird. It's just fucking ransacking. Like, That's who fucking thing. cares? And they'll be like, what the fuck are you doing here? And be like, I, I'm investigating burglaries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Clearly you've been burgled. <laughs> you've been burgled and I am here to help. <laughs> Common MOs of the burglaries included climbing fences, attempting to pry open multiple points of entry, leaving multiple points of escape open like windows, Moving removed window screens onto beds or in bedrooms and placing, quote, warning items such as dishes or bottles against the doors and on handles in case, like, a homeowner were to awaken or come home. Okay. So he would, like, put something in front of the door so if someone tried to open it, he would hear it. Right. He still sounds bumbly as fuck. Like, yeah, no. Like, dumbass. Dennis Panty Raider. <laughs> Dennis Panty Raider. <laughs> the burglaries became so frequent and well-known that he quickly gained the nickname the Visalia Ransacker due to the crimes being committed only in Visalia, only 10 miles away from where he worked. It's the Ransacker. Oh, he has like a shitload of nicknames. No, he doesn't. The Ransacker sounds so lame. The Ransacker. Like, he's not a robber. He's He's not not a a burglar. He's not a burglar. He's a Ransacker. He comes in and he just fluffs your clothing for you. And then he's. He just leaves, uh, like, small, slight inconveniences wherever he goes. <laughs> well, get this. He would often stay inside homes for hours at a time while li- rifling through clothing and stealing items of significance like one earring or a cufflink. Oh, my God! He is! Uh, he's the... He's what like is the it lamest the- burglar. <laughs> the Visalia Vandal. <laughs> yeah, the Visalia Vandal. He's the Visalian... Uh, Vi- Visalia Inconveniencer. <laughs> He has all your missing socks. At this time, he was also committing a series of burglaries near Sacramento in Rancho Cordova, including twice breaking into his childhood home. Okay. He broke into his own childhood home twice. Okay. That's only just a little disturbing, though, because you know that that's somebody that's dealing with childhood trauma. Yeah, for sure. sure. These break-ins earned him the nickname the Cordova Cat Burglar. Ooh, the oh, cat burglar now. <laughs> it's a cat burglar. Yeah, not the not the laundry fluffer. <laughs> In the fall of 1975, D'Angelo added sexual assault and murder to his rap sheet. Oh shit, that got real serious real yeah. quick. On September 11th, D'Angelo broke into the home of Claude Snelling, 45, at 532 Whitney Lane. Claude awoke around 2 a.m. by strange noises. Upon leaving his bedroom, Claude ran through the open back door and confronted a ski-masked man in his carport, attempting to kidnap his 16-year-old daughter. (gasps) I did not see that coming. The intruder had subdued the 16-year-old with the threat of a gun, and Claude ran to his daughter's defense. D'Angelo responded by shooting the father twice, (gasps) stumbling back into the house where his wife was. The father did. Oh, no. After shooting the father, D'Angelo kicked the girl three times in the face and then fled the scene, leaving behind a bicycle that he had stolen previously. What? Wait. He had, like, gotten there on bike on and bike. ran on and foot. And then was... <laughs> <laughs> but 
But he was trying to put her in the car? I guess he was trying to steal the family car? No, there was no car. He was just in the carport. Trying to take her? Yes. On bike. <laughs> like, what? Get in my bike. <laughs> what the fuck? I don't know. I actually That's don't crazy. Know. Okay, so... The dad? Unfortunately, the father would not survive this attack. <sighs> so sad. He After- saved his daughter's life, though. He did. That's crazy. After the murder, Beth Snelling, the 16-year-old victim, agreed to undergo hypnosis in order to try to gain further details about the assailant, but unfortunately, nothing came of it. That's interesting, though. You don't hear a lot about that. Yeah. A month later, in Rancho Cordova, a mother and her two daughters were tied up inside their home and assaulted. After hearing this news, $4,000 was offered as a reward by the police for the Visalia Ransacker's capture. You best believe I did the conversion rate. It would be 19 grand today. So they know that it's, I guess, just through description. They know it's the same perpetrator. Yeah, and like MO is very similar. Yeah. Other than the fact that now he's kidnapping people. Yeah, exactly. Or whatever. Well, they, or tying them up, I guess. They don't know at this point that he's the same person that attacked and the girl and killed the father. But oh. at the same time, they happen to put up the reward for the van, the Visalia ransacker. Oh, they don't know it's him doing it. I see. So. Okay, so the cat burglar... And the ransacker may or may not be the same person. Yeah, I don't think that they okay. know he's And the then same now person. there's potentially a third person yeah. who's like trying to kidnap mm-hmm. young ladies. Nighttime stakeouts were set up near houses that had previously been prowled, but the ransacking continued. The panty prowler. <laughs> the panty prowler. The panty prowler. <laughs> On December 12, 1975, around 8.30 p.m., a masked man entered the backyard of a home at 1505 W. Kawe Avenue, where the ransacker had been reported to frequent. Oh. So he went to this house? Oh, just the area, not yeah, this house. that mask. Okay, because I was thinking yeah. the same house over and over again. Well, he broke into his own childhood home twice, True. so. Detective William McGowan happened to be on a stakeout inside the garage of this <gasps> home and attempted to detain the man. McGowan fired a warning shot, causing D'Angelo to shriek, remove his mask, <laughs> and feign surrender. Oh my god. He went, ah! And he removed ah! his mask, and he went, ah! 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 Don't shoot! <laughs> He's immediately It's just elderly. me, the panty prowler! Don't shoot! <laughs> I just tried to talk to you about your car's extended warranty. Panty prowler! <laughs> I don't mean you any harm. I'm just here to ransack. (laughs) However, D'Angelo quickly began to run away instead of surrender and hopped the fence into 1501, pulling out a revolver in the process. He took a shot at McGowan, the bullet nearly missing his face and shattering his flashlight. (gasps) He had his flashlight next to his face. Oh my God, that's terrifying. Nearby officers, of course, rushed to McGowan's aid, giving way for D'Angelo to escape. They just pull out that glat glat. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Just pump a few into the air. Like, bah, 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 bah. like what's his face? Like, son of Sam. Oh, yeah. Just <laughs> running away. They were able to collect evidence such as shoe prints, dropped stolen items, and a sock full of coins. It was the 50 cents he stole from that other guy that one time. God, he's so dumb. When D'Angelo transferred to the Auburn Police Department in 1976, his crimes moved with him. Shocker. Shock. Around this time, the East Area Rapist was terrorizing the Sacramento area. I'm sorry, fucking who? During the time, D'Angelo was so active 
as the East Area Rapist that all of his crimes are not even listed online because there are too many to name. <gasps> Although it is known that he is implicated in at least 50 sexual assaults. The same guy? All of which he committed while working as a police officer. What? So he is not... He is a Visalia ransacker. He's the ransacker. The Cordova cat burglar. The cat and now burglar. he is the East Area Rapist. The panty protector and then the... <laughs> Panty prowler. Pa- prowler and he wasn't dubbed the panty prowler that was you that named him that. <laughs> yeah. i just gave him an extra one it's not like he needs another one but you there's, know don't worry there's more so now this is the east area rapist area rapist so he was committing the so he committed these crimes after he moved yes so he oh, moved away from visalia and cordova and those crimes just suddenly stopped and now the east area rapist is at large in another city in Sacramento. okay but clearly escalating now because it's not just yes. inconveniencing by ransacking it's not just tying up a mother and her child yeah it's sexual assault it's sexual assault now his initial mo was to stalk middle-class neighborhoods at night in search of women who were alone in one-story homes usually near a school creek trail or other open space that would provide for an easy escape Ooh, okay so he, he was that out yeah he was seen on multiple occasions by numerous people but was somehow always able to escape on one occasion he was caught in the act and began to be chased by somebody as he was running away he stopped and turned around shooting and wounding the young pursuer but not killing him oh my gosh like He's running, and then he just turns around and shoots just, at you, and then runs out. Like, that's so Yeah, scary. he did a Berkowitz. During the time of these attacks, many people had seen or heard a prowler on their property before experiencing the actual break-in. So he was just, like, bumbling a fucking round enough to make a noise. Do you think that he liked that? Like, he liked being caught? Or yeah, like I think he might have, yeah. That he, he was like, oh. was like, oh. Okay, like, oh, he liked to kind of scare someone. Yeah. And, like... Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Because that, that's definitely was that that wasn't um, Angel Resendez, but somebody else did that, right? Where they they were. Uh, I think it was BTK. Liked, maybe it was BTK. He liked to scare the shit out of them, and then whatever. Yeah. First. No, BTK would be like, "I'm on the run. All I need is money." And they'd be like, "Psych." It might have been BTK. D'Angelo would frequently break in when he knew that the house was vacant and go inside and pretty much like set up for the next time he would break in. So what do you he mean? would. He would break into someone's home, like, figure out the layout of the house, like, plant things in certain areas, and then he would leave, and then he would come back with those things ready for him when he, when the people were home. What? So he would, like, set up the house in order to, like, aid in his assault later? He would remove bullets from any gun that he found. He would hide ligatures and various other torture items as well in order for them to be available to him when he returned. That's fucking disgusting. One of the fucking creepiest things about this guy is that he was literally known to remove the bullets from someone's gun, put it back if it was next to their bedside table, wake them up with a flashlight, and when they reached for their gun, he would show them that he had the bullets in his hand and that their gun was empty. Isn't that so Looking for fucking these. creepy? Ugh, Can you imagine terrifying. that? Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> like, literally, like, that's why he scares me so much. That's bad. so creepy. Yeah. I think it was Richard Ramirez that had removed bullets from oh, a shotgun Oh yeah, I think so too. Right? I remember someone, someone did. Um, D'Angelo would also call future victims, sometimes for months in advance, in order to learn their routines. Like, call their house? To see if they were home or not. Oh. 
Although he originally targeted single women alone in their homes or with children, D'Angelo quickly found himself turning to targeting couples in their homes. It's just escalated, escalated, escalated. Mm -hmm. His original method was to break into the homes and awake the sleeping occupants with a flashlight, threatening them with a handgun. Victims were then bound with ligatures that he found or brought with him, then blindfolded and gagged with towels that he had ripped up into strips. The female victim was usually forced to tie up her male companion first before he would tie her up, before D'Angelo would tie her up. The bindings were usually so tight that the victim's hands would be numb for hours after being untied. I was just going to say, though, wouldn't you just, like, kind of not tie up your significant other if you were, like, forced to do it? But I guess he's standing there watching you, right? He probably checked it, too. He would then separate the couple. This is where you're going to be like, what? Often stacking dishes on the male's back and threatening to kill everyone in the room if he heard them rattle, i.e. try to move or get free. That's hilarious, because I feel like I reference that all the time I know, in these all casts, the time. and I never know who it is. And I'm like, you know, like that one guy with the plates? Yeah. And then him. the next episode, that one guy with the plates? Yes. Content warning. He would then move the female to the living room and proceed to rape her, with her partner seemingly being able to hear the whole time. That's awful. That is fucking disgusting. So disgusting. During these newfound attacks, D'Angelo would sometimes spend hours in the home making food for himself or ransacking various rooms. He would ransack that fridge. He would usually sexually assault the women multiple times during these visits as well and drink any alcohol in the home. So you get fucked up and wasted. That's so fucking disgusting. That's so gross. Ugh. In fact, he would actually hang around so long that sometimes the victims would think he was gone until he, like, re-emerged from the darkness. He was fucking taking a nap somewhere. He's just, like, quiet. He would always escape the homes on foot, but it is believed that he used a stolen bike to get him back to where his vehicle was, or at least far enough away from the scene. The East Area Rapist attacked various victims from June 1976 until May 1977. So one year. Yeah, pretty much. During this time, he took a three-month hiatus, but returned again in San Joaquin County in September before returning to Sacramento. So why do he, you like, think? Why do you think that is sometimes? Because I th- we see that sometimes where it's like three or four months off. Um, routine is a big one. Remember, we say like sometimes when they're in a routine, they don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. He's married to this woman at this point, so maybe they're trying for kids, which means they're having sex more often, and maybe he doesn't feel like he needs it. You know what sure. I mean? Like, there can yeah. be a lot of different factors. Or, like, job changes yeah. and, like, all that stuff, Well, he's right? had the same job this time. This whole well, time. yeah, but I'm just saying in other examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On March 18, 1977, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office received three calls from a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist. Ooh. None of these phone calls were recorded, however... Conveniently. The first two calls received at 4.15 and 4.30 p.m. were the same type of call, ending with laughter and hanging up. Terrifying. (laughs) The final call came in at 5 o'clock p.m., and the caller stated, quote, I'm the East Side Rapist, and I have my next victim already stalked, and you guys can't catch me. Um, are you the East Side Rapist, or are you the East East Area area. Rapist? Get it right. There's two different ones, (laughs) so you can't be both. Sorry, we, we already gave that name to another person. Can't have it. <laughs> like, fumbling. <laughs> pa- panty brawler. On December 2nd, 1977, the Sacramento Police Department received a similar call stating, quote, You're never gonna catch me, East Area Rapist, you dumb fuckers. I'm gonna fuck again tonight. Be careful. That's so fucking gross. That right? is disgusting. I'm gonna fuck again tonight. 
<laughs> your nasty dick. Apparently he had a micro penis too. <laughs> I, think, I think Jay Will said that too. He was like, I'm pretty sure he has a micro penis. I'm pretty sure. Actually, Jay Will said that. Now that I think about it, I didn't put it in here, but I'm pretty sure he had a micro penis because I remember hearing a story about one time he raped this girl and he she was a virgin and he didn't bust her fucking hymen because his dick is so small. Jay Will said the exact same thing. Okay, well there you go. So it's true. It's true. If Jay Will says it, it's if true. If Jay Will said it, it's fucking true. Oh, we have gross. the same birthday. Gross. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday, Jay Will. Happy birthday. This call was recorded and later released to the public. However, his claims were legit each time, and after both sets of phone calls, new victims were attacked, just like he had said. On December 9th, 1977, a previous victim of D'Angelo's received a phone call that she claimed was her attacker. The caller was noted as saying, quote, Merry Christmas, it's me again. <sighs> the next day on December 10th, Sacramento authorities received two identical phone calls, both stating, quote, I'm going to hit tonight, Watt Avenue. Like, you're fucking cool. <laughs> I'm gonna hit tonight. I'm gonna hit tonight. I'm gonna, I gotta hit. Both phone calls were recorded, and the caller was identified as the same person who placed the call on December 2nd. So, of course, police took this threat very seriously, considering his previous calls and claims, because he followed through. So they increased surveillance on Watt Avenue that night. It's called Watt Avenue? Watt. Oh, Watt. Yeah. I thought you were saying Watt Avenue, like, guess which avenue? No. Oh, okay, <laughs> that avenue. makes sense. Like a, like a light bulb. Like Watt. a bulb, okay. Around 2.30 a.m., a masked man eluded officers after being seen bicycling on the Watt <laughs> Avenue bridge. <laughs> When spotted again at 4.30 a.m., D'Angelo ditched the stolen bike and fled on foot. Also in December of 77, someone claiming to be the East Area Rapist sent a poem, quote, Excitements Crave, to the Sacramento Bee, the Sacramento Mayor's Office, and TV station KVIE. The poem is as follows. Oh, God, I love these. <clears throat> quote, All those mortals surviving birth upon facing maturity take inventory of their worth to prevailing society. Choosing values becomes a task. Oneself must seek satisfaction. The selected route will unmask character when plans take action. Accepting some work to perform at fixed pay but promise for more is a recognized social norm, is as decorum seeking lore. Achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame. Leisure tempts excitement seeking. What's right and expected seems tame. Quote, Jesse James has been seen by all. And, quote, Son of Sam has an author. Ooh! Others now feel temptations call. Sacramento should make an offer. To make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Just now I'd like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. Your East Area Rapist and Deserving Pest. See you in the press or on TV. End quote. That is intense. Isn't that wild? Like, that is wild. I mean, I kind of hate that he, like, kind of used, well, duh, they usually use platforms to be seen, but it was like, oh, by the way, I'm really good at poetry. They got, <laughs> kind of, like, like, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of good. It's kind of good. But so, mafia, Mafia's wife? 
He wants to, he said, I'd like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. So maybe he's going to like rape him. I mean, he never he's going to try to find yeah. a mafioso wife. Well, maybe he did. I don't want to say he never did because he had so many victims. Yeah. But... Yeah. That's so weird. Wild. I'm like, but like, like, why would you pick on the mafia? Like yeah. you're asking <laughs> right. for it. <laughs> on January 2nd, 1978, D'Angelo's first ever rape victim from the past received a phone call from a man asking for someone named Ray. Later that night, the same person called once again, and the victim was able to identify him as her attacker. He stated during this call, quote, Gonna kill you. Gonna kill you. Gonna kill you. Bitch. 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 Fucking whore. And then he hung up. What? <laughs> Jesus. Like, but he's a fucking poet. Yeah. So he called, okay, so he called his first victim. How did he get her number? I, guess, I don't know. I mean, this is the 70s. Yeah. Fucking yellow pages or something. White pages. Yeah. On January 6th, 1978, a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist called the Contact Counseling Service and said, I have a problem. I need... <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's supposed to say I need help, but it says I need herp. <laughs> I need the herp. <laughs> Maybe if I had herpes, I'd stop doing this. Quote. <laughs> I need herp. <laughs> please, please get me some herp. I need herp. Okay, he said, quote, I have a problem. I need help because I don't want to do this anymore. After a short conversation, the caller spoke again and said, quote, I believe you are tracing this call and then hung up. <gasps> yeah. Creepy. D'Angelo attacked five times during the summer of 1978 in Stanislaus and Yolo counties before disappearing again for three months, and then moved primarily to Contra Costa County in October and stayed until July of 1979. At this point in the investigation, the Visalia Ransacker and the East Area Rapist were thought to be two different people. Mm-hmm. Also at this time, a newly noticed serial killer by the name of the Night Stalker appeared in the media. <gasps> Unbeknownst to the world, this was the Visalia Ransacker and the East Area Rapist, and he had committed his first murder over a year prior. Wait, so it wasn't Richard Ramirez? (gasps) But they called him the Night Stalker? Just wait. (gasps) Oh my gosh. There's already Son of Sam and Night Stalker, but not Night Stalker, Night Stalker. Yeah. His Night Stalker. Ooh. On February 2nd, 1978, Brian and Katie Madgery were walking their dog in the Rancho Cordova area, closely where the East Area Rapist was stalking and they had an unfortunate run-in with him. After a supposed confrontation, D'Angelo shot Brian, seriously injuring or killing him. It wasn't clear if it was immediate death. He did ultimately die. And in response to this, Katie ran away and yelled for help. D'Angelo was able to catch up with her and delivered a fatal gunshot to her head, according to prosecutors. Wow. Just like in the street? Mm -hmm. That poor dog probably was like, what do I do? He left the dog? Didn't say that he did or didn't, but I feel I'm like sure the he... dog ran off yeah. like immediately with, that, uh, with a loud noise like that. Brian Madry was a military policeman for the U.S. Air Force and was living on base at the time of the attack. That's so sad. On December 9th, 1978, during the investigation of one of his attacks, investigators discovered three sheets of notebook paper where a suspicious vehicle had been parked. They believed the pages were dropped accidentally, like out of a notebook or out of like a bag okay. of some sort. 
The first sheet looked to be a homework essay on General George Armstrong Custer, while the second sheet contains a journal-style entry describing a teacher who made students write lines, which the author did not like. On the second paper, read the following, quote, Mad is the world, the world that reminds me of sixth grade. I hated that year. I wish I had known what was going to be going on during my sixth grade year, the last and worst year of elementary school. Mad is the world that remains in my head about my dreadful year as a sixth grader. My madness was one that was caused by disappointments that hurt me very much. Disappointments from my teacher, such as field trips that were planned, then canceled. My sixth grade teacher gave me a lot of disappointments, which made me very mad and made me built a state of hatred in my heart. No one ever let me down that hard before, and I never hated anyone as much as I did him. Disappointment wasn't the only reason that made me mad in my sixth grade class. Another was getting in trouble at school, especially talking. That's what really bugged me, was writing sentences. Those awful sentences that my teacher made. Me write. Hours and hours, I'd sit and write. 50, 100, 150 sentence. Day and night, I write those dreadful paragraphs, which embarrassed me more and more and made me ashamed of myself, which in turn, deep down inside, made me realize that writing sentence wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to make me suffer like that. It just wasn't fair to make me sit and write until my bones act, until my hand felt every horrid pain that it ever had as I wrote. I got madder and madder until I cried. I cried because I was ashamed. I cried because I was disgusted. I cried because I was mad. And I cried for myself, kid who kept on having to write those Dane sentences. My angriness from sixth grade will scar my memory for life, and I will be ashamed for my sixth grade year forever. End quote. This was all on the back of one page? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely two pages worth of content. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And all of those, like, seemingly sounding typos, like, I read it how it was written. Yeah. (laughs) We we don't read. (laughs) We mon. On the last sheet, a hand-drawn map of what looks like a neighborhood with the word punishment written across the backside. So when the front was, like, remedial, like, not remedial, but, like, uh, just basic information about nothingness? It was, like, an essay-style thing of, like, a like a military <clears throat> general or something. That's, a, yeah, Custer. Yeah, and then it was that On the angry back. thing about, no, there's three pages total. The second page was that angry note about his sixth grade teacher. Oh, I see. Yeah. But still, like, that's so weird. Yeah. Definitely and how, weird. But he's, like, a grown adult. Yeah. So, like, why would he have, like, essay pages for, like... I don't know. I think that he's, like... Or is he, like... Was he maybe trying to attempt to, like, put himself back in, like, a high school... Maybe. ...setting? And that was, like, his essay paper, and then he wrote this because... He's really into writing. He sent a poem to the police. It's so weird. Although investigators were unable to identify the area that was drawn... Experts believe that it was a fantasy-like striking ground drawn by the perpetrator. After these attacks, D'Angelo continued to commit crimes as the East Area Rapist, attacking more than 20 women and couples until 1979. His last known attack that solely consisted of breaking and entering and rape was on July 5, 1979, and after this attack, D'Angelo moved to Southern California, where his crimes escalated once again to murder. This fucking guy. It's really interesting, though, that, like, when he, he moves, it escalates, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like... I guess H.H. was kind of that way, too, though, right? Yeah. Like, he was just doing petty crime or whatever, and then... Well, not pre- petty crime. He was doing 
federal fraud. But, yeah. you know, um, but when he moved to Chicago, that's when he started murdering people. So that's interesting, like, that location interesting. change like that. Maybe they think they can get away with it more if they move, you know? Yeah. He actually left his first trip without satisfaction as his victims had escaped. But ultimately, D'Angelo would continue to kill until 1986, where he earned the nickname the Night Stalker and evaded responsibility for these attacks until many decades later when he was renamed the original Night Stalker after Richard Ramirez took the previous title. Interesting. So he got dubbed OG Night Stalker. Yeah. So like totally trumping. Yeah. Richard Ramirez. Because, well, I forget what the years were for Ramirez. Well, Ramirez was born 80s in like and the 90s, 70s. Right? Yeah, and this is like the late 70s. Where well, he was 80s, I guess, not, yeah. So, yeah, well, he was born in the 50s, so yeah. I guess, yeah, just older in general. Yeah. On July 2nd, 1979, D'Angelo had his first and only run-in with the law until his capture. And when? In 79. Okay. He was caught shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent, which was thought later to be able to assist with his other crimes, of Oh, my God. Dog repellent? Yeah, it's sad. He did know Son of Sam. <laughs> D'Angelo was suspended by the Auburn Police Department pending the investigation, and about two months later, on August 27th, he was relieved from his duties as an officer of the law, and his career in law enforcement came to an abrupt end. Interesting. I wonder how he felt about that. Because that's yeah. kind of like your cover. Yeah, like, exactly. Where you work. I'm a where good you, guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where you go to church and all that other stuff is part of your cover. On October 1st, 1979, D'Angelo broke into a couple's home in Southern California and tied them both up, reenacting his usual MO. While he was rifling around their things, the couple overheard D'Angelo talking to himself, saying things like, quote, I'll kill them. Who are you fucking proving that to? Who are you talking to? (laughs) Obviously terrified, the couple began to try to free themselves from the restraints as D'Angelo was in the other room. While doing so, the woman began screaming very loud, causing alarm in the home. Oh my gosh. D'Angelo did not want to risk the other neighbors hearing and getting concerned, so he took off on a bicycle that he probably stole. That he probably stole. (laughs) In fact, a neighbor did hear the screaming, and he just so happened to be an FBI agent. Oh shit. He pursued D'Angelo, who had abandoned the bicycle and a knife, and fled on foot. Because you're faster than a bike, right? right? On I, foot. I don't understand. He must have just been really bad on a bike. Well, he did. He did flee through connecting neighbors' backyards, so he probably couldn't get the bike like through the, yeah. know, the fences and stuff. D'Angelo was able to escape and disappeared into the night. He must Damn. be in good shape if he can keep running out, running these people. Well, clearly he doesn't know how to ride a bicycle. He yeah. should just stop with the bicycle. He just runs with the bike. He might his as hands. well just get a taxi to drive him everywhere. <laughs> On October 26th, D'Angelo faced charges in court for his petty shoplifting, with the jury unknowingly deciding the fate of a murderer. That's so creepy. Isn't that creepy? Yeah, that's creepy. Unfortunately, these other crimes had not yet been connected to D'Angelo, and he was found guilty for his shoplifting, fined $100, and sentenced to six months probation. Write a poem about that. Probation, though. He never went to jail. I know. Write a poem about it. (laughs) On December 30th, 44-year-old Dr. Robert Offerman and 35-year-old Deborah Alexandra Manning were found shot to death in Robert's condo in Goleta. When police arrived at the scene, it was noted that Robert's bindings were untied, indicating that he got free at one point and tried to lunge at the attacker. Oh my gosh. When questioned, neighbors also said that they did hear multiple gunshots at the suggested time of death. Also found at the scene paw prints of a seemingly big dog, suggesting that the killer may have brought one with him. What? 
to scare them, maybe. But why would he buy dog repellent and then buy a dog? It's a weirdo. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking weirdo. He steals children's bikes to tie up people in their homes. Lastly, D'Angelo had also broken into the vacant adjoining home and stolen a bicycle. Oh, God. Later found abandoned on a street north of the scene of the crime. Because he doesn't know how to ride one. These would be the first murders committed by the original Night Stalker. <laughs> on March 13th, D'Angelo broke into the home of 33-year-old Charlene Smith and 43-year-old Lyman Smith, a married couple living in Ventura. Upon entering the home, he proceeded to subdue the couple and he raped Charlene. The two had their wrists and ankles tied tied with drapery cords, and the knot was noted as being an unusual knot known as the diamond knot on Charlene's wrist. Is that like a, like a Boy Scout thing? or a na- Oh, it's a Navy thing? Wait, did he serve in the Navy or the Army? He was in the Navy. <gasps> it's a Navy knot! A Navy knot! <laughs> a Navy knot! Oh, shit. The two victims had been bludgeoned to death with a log taken from a woodpile on the side of the home. Jesus! The fancy knot that was used to tie up Charlene was so unusual that the murderer was therefore briefly given the nickname the Diamond Knot Killer. Oh my god. <laughs> He's just he racking them up. these aliases. Just racking them up. Unlike some other idiots that, like, write into newspapers. Yeah. And, like, create their own aliases. <laughs> I like the following. How about you? I like the following. How about you? You pick it. This diamond knot also gave way for the police to connect the original Night Stalker with the East Area Rapist, as the Ooh. same knot was used at two different crime scenes. Ah. On August 19th, 24-year-old Keith Eli Harrington and 27-year-old Patrice Briscoe Harrington were found bludgeoned to death in their home in a gated community. Patrice Harrington had also been notably raped, and although no murder weapon or ligatures were found at the scene... There was evidence that both of the wrists and ankles of each person had been bound for a period of time. So he had bound them up at some point and then took the stuff with him after they were deceased, it seems like. Patrice was a nurse in Irvine, and Keith was a medical student at UC Irvine at the time of their deaths. They had been married for only three months. (gasps) They were, like, newlywed, newlywed. That's so sad. Following this horrific crime, Keith's brother Bruce later spent nearly $2 million supporting California Proposition 69, authorizing DNA collection from all California felons and certain other criminals. Hell yeah. That's Richard Ramirez. That happened right when he was caught. Yeah. After these murders occurred, a $25,000 reward was offered for the capture of the original Night Stalker. $102,621 today. Wow. On February 6th, 1981... 28-year-old Manuela Whithun was in her home alone when an intruder entered unannounced. Manuela was home alone because her husband was in the hospital for an extended period of time, and she just happened to be staying at home that night. Could you imagine being in the hospital when something like that happens to your partner? Once D'Angelo entered her home, there was evidence that he tied her up with his usual M.O. D'Angelo raped and murdered the woman, leaving no murder weapon or ligatures behind once again. That's weird that he just all of a sudden decided decided to start taking those. But do you think it's because he knew that they had found the knot? I think maybe so. Maybe he was like, I've done this too many times now. Like, I need to start, like, making sure I'm, like, being more aware. Switching it up a little bit? Yeah. Interesting. Manuela's TV was also found in the backyard. Seemingly the attacker's attempt to make the scene look like a robbery gone wrong. Hmm. Dumbass. (laughs) Just the TV? Yeah. Nobody gave a shit about anything else in there. Her, like, diamond earrings are still on her. Yeah. He just took one. On July 27th, 1981, 35-year-old Sherry Domingo and 27-year-old Gregory Sanchez became the original Night Stalker's 10th and 11th victims. 
The two were hanging out at Sherry's home on Taltic Way in Goleta, only four blocks down from the murders of Robert Offerman and Deborah Alexandra Manning. This guy is so ballsy. Like, he, he does is. not give a shit. Upon entering the home through a small bathroom window, D'Angelo did not tie Gregory up, but instead shot him in the cheek, wounding him badly before beating him to death with a garden tool. Jesus Christ. He's ruthless. It is thought by authorities that Gregory may have realized that the man he was dealing with was responsible for the previous two murders down the block, and he tried to tackle D'Angelo, causing him to be injured without being tied up first. Despite the gunshot to the face, no neighbors alerted authorities about any noise during this time. Wow. I would think I would be on high alert, knowing there was just a murder down the street. After D'Angelo fatally wounded Gregory, he covered his face up with a pile of clothes pulled from the closet and moved on to his next target, Sherry. What was she doing this whole time? Oh, he tied her up. Sherry was tied up seemingly upon D'Angelo entering the home and was unfortunately raped and bludgeoned to death. Bruises were left on her wrists and ankles, but the restraints were not left at the crime scene once again. A piece of shipping twine was found near her bed, and fibers from an unknown source were scattered over her body. Fibers of an unknown source? Like, maybe, like, something off his clothing, or maybe, like, a piece of, like, something he used to, like, tie her hands up or something? Sure, yeah. After investigating the scene and based on evidence found, authorities believe that the perpetrator may have worked as a painter or in a similar job at the Cal Real Shopping Center. Why? I'm not sure. Just that after <laughs> evidence was found. After, after some it, evidence, it must have been those fibers. Nothing panned out. Oh, I see. September of the same year, 1981, D'Angelo's first daughter was born. What? He's still with Sharon. The fuck, Sharon? Well, she doesn't know. In 1982, a previous victim of D'Angelo's received a call at her place of work, a Denny's restaurant. During this call, the rapist threatened to rape her again. (sighs) Experts believed that D'Angelo happened to be a patron at the restaurant and recognized her, giving way for him to find out where she worked. Could you imagine, like, like this fucker knows who you are. Yeah. And you don't recognize him. Yeah. Because probably psychologically you've tried to block it exactly. out. Exactly. Or he had like a mask on or something. And then could you imagine the the amount of damage he did by calling her? Yeah. I mean, just by hearing her? his voice, like, totally petrified her. That's fucking disgusting. This guy's evil. Yeah, he is. Like, no, he's, he's one of the worst, in my opinion. On May 4th, 1986, 18-year-old Janelle Lisa Cruz was found after she was raped and bludgeoned to death in her home in Irvine. At the time of the attack, her family was on vacation in Mexico, and when they arrived home, they found the horrible scene. That is... Oh my god. I know. This fucking guy. A missing pipe wrench reported missing by Janelle's stepfather was thought to be the murder weapon. During the time of these multiple murders, police could not seem to agree on who they thought was the perpetrator, or even if the murders were committed by the same person. In 1991, a previous victim received a phone call from the perpetrator and spoke with him for one minute. She could hear a woman and children in the background, leading to speculation that Joseph James D'Angelo had a family. Remember Sharon? I just mentioned her. Yeah. The two were still married at this point. They had married in 73, and Sharon actually became a divorce attorney in 82, which is kind of funny. (laughs) D'Angelo managed to keep his private life a secret from his entire family, having their second daughter in November of 1986 and his third in May of 1989, 
until him and Sharon separated in 1991. But it wasn't because of his actions, and it wouldn't be until many years later that the divorce was actually filed by Sharon. What? It wasn't clear why the two separated, but the phone calls to previous victims also ended around the same time that they split. They split up. But she didn't leave him because she found anything out, seemingly. I find that interesting that she's a divorce attorney. Yeah. (laughs) And I guess maybe it's just because she sees so many relationships that are decimated that maybe it made her appreciate appreciate what she has at home, maybe, or something. And try to, like, put up with more bullshit. Yeah. During this time as well, I told you that D'Angelo was no longer working in law enforcement. And instead, he had gotten a job working as a truck mechanic for Save Mart Supermarket Distribution Center in Roseville. So maybe that's where the evidence or the... It's kind of a similar gig to painting or whatever. There's actually a huge gap in his reported life between 1990 and 2017. Although he was arrested once in 1996 for failing to pay for gas. But the charge was dismissed. He wasn't doing any... anything? He wasn't raping or murdering or... Rummaging Not that we know of. What the fuck? Prowling. Prowling? Panty prowler? D'Angelo's brother-in-law later claimed that D'Angelo would casually bring up the East Area Rapist in conversation around the time of the original crimes. Remember that? That was crazy. What a crazy time. Does anyone want to talk about that East Area Rapist that's at large? Remember that guy? No, he was talking about it, like, during the time it was happening. Oh. Like, he's like, come to think of it, he was mentioning the East Area Rapist a lot when (laughs) the East Area Rapist was that large. (laughs) Come to think of it. (laughs) Neighbors also reported that he would frequently engage in loud, profane outbursts that they could hear. One neighbor reported that his family received a phone message from D'Angelo threatening to, quote, deliver a load of death because of their barking dog. Sounds like Son of Sam. (laughs) Deliver a load of death. I'm going to deliver a load (laughs) of death. (laughs) Between 1996 and 2001, before officially connecting the original Night Stalker to the East Area Rapist, some law enforcement officials sought to link the Goleta cases as well. The links were primarily due to similar MOs, and police were beginning to put the pieces of the puzzle together. On April 6, 2001, the day after an article in the Sacramento Bee linked the original Night Stalker and East Area Rapist, a victim of the rapist received a call from D'Angelo. He asked, quote, Remember when we played? <gasps> fucking gross, right? Like, that's vile. Oh my god, that is... Ugh, this guy is disgusting. Disgusting. Although the links of these crimes were made in the early 2000s, D'Angelo was able to lay low for many more years without being known to commit them. To, not to commit anymore. That's crazy. Though his crimes were now considered cold cases, law enforcement was still actively looking for any clues that would link them to the identity of the killer. As a result of D'Angelo's unsolved crimes, California lawmakers began pushing for a centralized DNA database, and the law passed in November of 2004. Using the new information and technology to their advantage, police kept working the case, and by January 2007, all of the original Night Stalker murders and 55 sexual assaults from the East Area Rapist had been definitively linked to the same attacker. Dang! So they went through, like, all those kits and everything and Mm -hmm. and linked it all. In addition, one month later, in February, a retired detective linked the Visalia Ransacker cases to these crimes. 
Now, with the original Night Stalker, the East Area Rapist, and the Visalia Ransacker crimes all linked together, some saw the need to create a new name for this one perpetrator. And in 2011, true crime writer Michelle McNamara coined the most infamous name for this attacker, the Golden State Killer. Between 2013 and 2017, partially thanks to the release of this new nickname of the perpetrator, investigations by multiple law enforcement agencies ramped up yet again. On June 15, 2016, 40 years after the first known assault by the Golden State Killer, the FBI added an additional $50,000 reward for any information leading them to the killer, and adding new composite sketches and crime details as well. Eventually, quote, through the use of genetic genealogy searching on GED match, investigators identified distant relatives of D'Angelo, including family members related directly to his great-great-great-great-grandfather, dating back to the 1800s. What the fuck? So it's not like he's just like, he's like, nah, that ain't me. Like, it's like, no, like... It's like a one in a trillion chance. Yeah, exactly. So there's a chance. (laughs) Based on this information, investigators were able to build about 25 different family trees, and the one that led to D'Angelo specifically contained about 1,000 people. They literally had his entire life, like his entire ancestry laid out, and they just had to narrow it down to who it who it was. Over the course of the next few months, investigators used other clues like age, sex, and place of residence to rule out suspects populating these trees, eliminating them one by one until only D'Angelo remained. This is in 2004? This is in 2017. 2017? Yes. Like yesterday? Yes. (laughs) For fuck's sake. The idea of using this investigative genetic genealogy came from cold case investigator Paul Holes, who even used a still-sealed sexual assault kit from 1980 to begin his search. Whoa. On April 18th, 2018, a DNA sample was collected from the door handle of D'Angelo's car. The sample was a match to samples associated with Golden State Killer crimes. What the fuck? During this time, investigators also looked at multiple other suspects for the crimes they had been researching all the while. Brett Glasby from Galetta was considered to be a suspect by the Santa Barbara County investigators. However, they found out that he himself was murdered in Mexico in 82, before the murder of Janelle, Cr- Janelle Cruz, eliminating him as a suspect. Wow. Paul Cornfed Schneider, a high-ranking member of the Aryan Brotherhood... There it is. <laughs> ...was living in Orange County when the Harringtons, Manuela Woodham, and Janelle Cruz were killed. However, a DNA test cleared him in the 90s. Lastly, Joe Alsip was a friend and business partner of the victim, Lyman Smith, and allegedly confessed something to his pastor during a family counseling session. Oh, no. Alsip was arraigned for the Smith murders in 1982, but the charges were later dropped, and his innocence was confirmed by DNA testing in 97. That's good. I hope he was a good person. Yeah. As far as D'Angelo goes, the evidence was compelling. He grew up in Rancho Cordova. He lived and worked near Visalia as a police officer during the Visalia Ransackers spree. He transferred to Auburn at the same time the East Area Rapist spree began. And following his termination from the police department, he briefly lived in Southern California at the start of the original Night Stalker killings. Hmm. On March 18th, 2018, the Sacramento Sheriff's Department began railing D... Railing him. (laughs) (laughs) 
the Sacramento Sheriff's Department began tailing D'Angelo, now 72 years old. Oh my gosh. They noticed that he had a particularly active lifestyle. Yard work, fishing, motorcycle riding, etc. He's upgraded from bicycles. Yeah. (laughs) On April... (laughs) It's so true. He learned how to ride a motorcycle. That's great. On April 23rd, 2018, the Sacramento PD used an empty garbage truck to collect D'Angelo's trash with the goal of extracting his DNA from a discarded piece of trash. And later that day, rapid DNA testing definitively linked D'Angelo to several East Area rapist and original Night Stalker crimes. The next day, on April 24th, 2018... Sacramento County Sheriff's deputies arrested D'Angelo and subsequently charged him with eight counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. Because of his age? Well, I didn't know what that meant either, so I had to look it up, but pretty much means that they have the right to try him with harsher punishment due to the nature of the crimes. Oh. So I thought it might have been an age thing, but apparently it's like, you know, some things can be ruled out, like there has to be like a maximum sentence. I think that they kind of like vetoed that in this case. Yeah, they were just like, fuck this guy. D'Angelo was living with one of his daughters, his eldest daughter, and her daughter, his grandchild, at the time of his arrest. What the fuck? Several months after his arrest, Sharon Marie Huddle filed for divorce from Joseph James D'Angelo. After he was in his 70s? After mm-hmm. he was caught? Mm-hmm. Then she filed for divorce? She didn't know until he was caught that he was... Well, virgin. they weren't together, I guess, yeah. but, but still... On May 10th, the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office charged D'Angelo with four additional counts of first-degree murder. Although D'Angelo was seen being very active in the entire month he was being tailed, as soon as he entered the police station, he began this persona of a feeble old man, (laughs) seemingly with dementia, an act he would keep up throughout his entire trial. So he's, like, in a wheelchair. He's with all like, decrepit now, all He's of got, sudden. like, the IV and the, the oxygen tank and the... Yeah. They did that with Durst, too. Durst yeah. was like, mm-hmm. oh, he's just this old man. <laughs> like, when he was being interviewed for that HBO special, The Jinx, um, he seemed fine and he seemed healthy and he seemed, you know, mm-hmm. radiant even at certain <laughs> points until he started burping, which was really awkward. Yeah. But then after that, once he, because he was free then, but as soon as he went to trial, he was this old man who couldn't remember anything. That's really funny that you just brought him up because of what I'm going to say next. (gasps) What? At one point, while alone in an interrogation room, D'Angelo was overheard talking to himself. Oh my God. Similarly to Robert Durst. Oh my God. He said, quote, I did all that. I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like... In my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all of those things. I've destroyed all their lives, so now I gotta pay the price. Who's Jerry? This was the first of many times that D'Angelo claimed to have been overcome by a force or a personality named Jerry that was the real perpetrator of the crimes. (laughs) Not me. I just look like him. He's trying to play like he has dissociative identity disorder, apparently. Yeah. Well, maybe Jerry's the one that can ride the bike. Maybe. Well... And then he snaps out of it. And then a force that just supposedly stopped having control in 1986 when he stopped killing. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. When he probably didn't get any real um, psychiatric help. Yeah. Not that you need psychiatric help when you have a DID. I'm just saying. Yeah. That in his mind, because he's claiming it. You know what I mean? 
Seven survivors of D'Angelo's crimes assisted in his sentencing by picking him out of a lineup in which all seven chose a photo of him without a doubt in their minds. Hell yeah. All in all, D'Angelo was charged with 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. Unfortunately, he could not be charged for his sexual assaults or burglaries due to the statute of limitations being passed. It's fucking bullshit. I'm sorry. And that's such bullshit. If you have evidence, it shouldn't be matter. It shouldn't matter. It's the same shit like OJ. It was like statute yep. of limitations. So for listeners that don't know what that is, a statute of limitations is the maximum amount of time that can pass before a person can no longer be charged with that crime. For sexual assault in 2018, I think it was 10 years unless it was committed on a child. Um, and then there's no limitation. Yeah. So he was arraigned in 2018. So unfortunately, he wasn't able to. I think domestic violence was seven. Well, there's a lot that like don't have a statute of like murder. Of course, yeah. like you can always get charged with that. Like yeah. clearly, 40 years later, right? I missed my mark a long time ago. D'Angelo was arraigned in Sacramento on August 23rd, 2018. In November, prosecutors from six involved counties collectively estimated that the case could cost taxpayers $20 million and last 10 years. Jesus. About eight months later, in a court proceeding on April 10th, 2019, prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty, and the judge ruled that cameras would be allowed inside the courtroom during the trial. LOL. Almost another year went by, and on March 4th, 2020... D'Angelo offered to plead guilty as long as the death penalty were taken off the table. What does he fucking care? I fucking hate that shit. Murderers that are terrified to die. Yeah. That makes no sense in my mind. Fucking assholes. This plea was not accepted at the time, but in June 2020, news reports stated that an agreement had been reached for D'Angelo to be spared a death sentence in exchange for pleading guilty. Oh, I bet he used his fucking kids, too. I bet he was like, I have children and grandchildren that, like, I need to be alive for. Seriously. On June 29th, 2020, Joseph James D'Angelo pleaded guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and special circumstances, as well as 13 counts of kidnapping and other various charges, totaling 88 altogether. Oh, shit. He also admitted to being the original Night Stalker, the East Area Rapist, the Vesalia Ransacker, and the Cordova Cat Burglar. And the, and the, pa- the Panty Prowler. <laughs> and the Panty Prowler. <laughs> From August 18th to August 20th, 2020, D'Angelo was confronted in court by rape survivors, their relatives, and the relatives of those whom he had killed. If you see photos from this, like, this hearing, he's, like, in a, like, wheelchair, he's all decrepit, and he has a mask on, and he's all, like, fucking falling apart. He looks really fucking creepy. Like the Crypt Keeper? Yeah. Jane Carson Sandler, who was raped in 1976 while home with her son, told the court, quote, I was frozen in fear beyond description. My attention was not on the rape, but fully on where did you put my son when you removed him from the bed? Where did you put him, and what were you going to do with him? Jane also stated that now, decades later, scars from her attack still remain, and seeing a ski mask or hearing someone yell, quote, shut up, will forever cause her anxiety. She ended by saying, quote, my comfort at those times is remembering that if that you are finally going to prison and will remain there until you die. D'Angelo offered a brief apology after hearing the victim's statements, which I don't think they should be allowed to do, but whatever, and responded with, quote, I've listened to all of your statements, each one of them, and I'm truly sorry to everyone I've hurt. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was sentenced to the maximum penalty the court could impose, 11 consecutive life sentences for murder, plus one additional life sentence sentence for the kidnapping charges, 
and an additional eight years for the weapons charges. Never gonna make it. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna be like 5,000 when you get out. <laughs> In November of 2020, D'Angelo was transferred to the North Kern State Prison, and as of February 2021, he is incarcerated in protective custody at California State Prison Cor- Corcoran. Um, so he's still alive. The last thing I can find is from early last year, but he's still kicking. That's crazy to me that, like, he's under protective custody. But if you think about how long he operated, for, like, how long he operated and how many people he affected, there's got to be at least one or two people in there that know somebody that was affected by him. Well, yeah, and also, like, maybe they're thinking, like, if they can keep him at all times, like, maybe he'll confess to more things and they can close more cases, you know? That's true. For his family and the people around him, nobody really knew, like, the monster inside of him. His eldest daughter came out years later and stated that he was the perfect father and she loved him for who he was at home. His wife, Sharon, stated that she simply believed his reasons for being out of the house so often and she never thought anything was amiss about his lifestyle. That's so scary. Like, thinking that, like, the person that you shared a home with was, like... They're, like, a total chameleon. Neighbors of his, however, thought differently about the husband and father. One of his close neighbors, Corey Harvey, confirmed that D'Angelo was living with his daughter and granddaughter, but was shocked at the arrest, stating that she simply knew D'Angelo as, quote, Joe, the old man who said retirement was a great opportunity to go fishing. <laughs> hmm. She also said that Joe was an avid bike bike rider and that he was a normal man, quote, except for that quirkiness of getting mad. So he still had a temper mm. in his 70s. It's a quirk. Getting that mad yeah. is a quirk. Other okay. neighbors saw this angry side of him more often than not. Natalia Bedes Carenti, a neighbor that lived a few doors down, stated, quote, We used to just call him Freak. Which is kind of fucked up, but he is. Still. She continued, quote, He used to have these temper tantrums, not at anybody, just his self-frustration. Like, he would just yell at himself, I guess. Well, I mean, he has a habit of talking to himself, so that kind of makes sense. A third neighbor... neighbor... <laughs> this is how long we've been talking about this goddamn case. <laughs> Eddie Verndon said that he once saw D'Angelo prowling on his property, stating about him, quote, I had the creeps about this guy for a long time. I think everybody likes to say that, though. Oh, I had a oh, I knew, about him. I knew the whole time. Yeah. It's like, bitch, why didn't you do anything, though? <laughs> Michelle McNamara wrote online and for the Los Angeles magazine about the Golden State Killer. If you don't remember, she was the one that dubbed the nickname. And she suggested that he would ultimately be caught due to the DNA advancements that we have. Her writings also brought attention to more unsolved crimes, and she made her investigative journey very public by announcing the writing of a book entitled, quote, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I actually own that book, Hmm. if you want to read it. (laughs) Unfortunately, McNamara suffered a fatal overdose in 2016 before she was able to identify the Golden State Killer. After she passed, her husband... Patton Oswald. I'm not sure if anyone else knows. I know you know. <laughs> Patton Oswald oversaw the completion of her book, and it became a bestseller after it was published in February 2018. That's like really sweet. That, he, that like, is really sweet. Took he her story and clearly loved her a lot. Yeah. And you can see that in like every interview. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., there are many different thoughts about the state of his mental health. Some people think that he's a sociopath, a psychopath, that he has antisocial personality disorder or even borderline personality disorder, but the truth is he was never officially diagnosed with anything. Probably because of a lack of caring on his, you know, parents' part, but there are other things that counteract the idea that D'Angelo was a psychopath or sociopath. His remorse. 
Now, he didn't seem very remorseful in the court, but get this. Beginning in mid-1977, the survivors of his heinous crimes came forward with information about their attacker. They would say that he was overheard crying and muttering things to himself after he would attack them, saying things like, quote, Mommy, I don't want to do this. There's also a reported call that he made in 1978 again to the counseling service where he asked for help. Another clue to his true sense of self is the fact that he had a family, which is not surprising in itself since others have had families. However, they were completely adamant that he was not only a good husband and father, but a great one. In fact, again, his eldest daughter advocated for him writing a five-page letter to the court after his arrest, suggesting that he was absolutely not responsible for these crimes and he was an amazing person. So my point is, is that psychopaths and sociopaths can fake a lot of emotions, but it's yeah. hard to fake these ones that we've seen, like, in these examples. That is really interesting, yeah, about the, I mean, first of all, the Norman Bates shit, like, mommy, I don't want to do this, like, kind of shit. Yeah. But it does show, I guess, some type of a level of, like, like, the fact that he was connected to that, even if it was his childhood, like, he broke into his childhood home. Clearly, he's able to remain in a space where he's connecting with, like, that inner child or, like, something that he he's, he's like, mourning mm -hmm. or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, he's connected to something. He clearly cares about something enough to do that, right? And then to be a good father. I mean, how? Like, what a fucking identity crisis his Honestly, daughter must be going through yeah. to try to, like, connect this. Like, he... Like, does she still think he's innocent, or does she now finally accept that he's the one? Like, and like, what made him just like buckle down and like not do not anything. do anything? Because clearly he was living, I guess, separated from his wife, which meant that he probably had his daughters some of the time. Yeah, but is it that because his daughters like had gotten older, he didn't want them to get suspicious? Well, I don't so then know. He kind of stopped. He had also gotten away with it for so long, and he did so many crimes. Maybe he was like, shit, I might as well quit while I'm ahead and like just fucking live out my retirement and not potentially get caught and put in jail you know yeah he just I, he just wasn't expecting dna <laughs> yeah <laughs> come well way was, that's true know? yeah and for it to be so easily accessible to people yeah exactly that's, well, that's crazy yeah, that's it that's what a good case oh it took me a long time to research that but it was a really good um it needed to be done you no know, it definitely did and i mean i've heard this story for the first time like a full podcast episode about it the first time like in 2018 like i think they did it because he had gotten caught yeah and so, yeah, it was a, a really good, um, really good episode. <laughs> I definitely remember hearing about it. I just didn't realize it had been so long that he had, like, not yeah. committed any crimes. Yeah, that's wild, right? Yeah, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Uh, we're gonna get this out pretty quick, and we're gonna really buckle down. We've been talking about just going for it. I got the itch all over again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we have a bunch of, I have a bunch of unexpected free time, so I'm gonna be using that to... <laughs> Uh, to get out some content. We're still looking for sponsors, of course. Uh, donate to the Patreon if you'd like. Share us. Please, like, tell everybody that you know about us. We're not going to ever not want <laughs> more listeners. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's all I had. All right. Okay, well, it's Sounds you good. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.